Well, good morning, everyone. How are we? Are we ready to study the book of Ames? Hayden told me to say it. He said I could make fun of it. Okay, I got permission. Um, hope everyone's doing well. If you're new or visiting with us, my name is Ryan. I am the lead pastor here at Arbor. It is so good to see all of you here gathered with us on this Sunday morning. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and get those out and turn to the book of Ames with us. To, I mean James uh, with us this morning. And as you arrive here in the coming weeks, get used to showing up, getting here, getting your Bibles out, and getting into James. We are going to be in James for the next eight or nine weeks or who knows how long we're going to be in this book. We're going to be in this book for the next couple of months. And, and like many of us, James, the author of this book, he knew what it was like to wrestle with the reality of faith in a broken world. But unlike many of us, James also knew what it was like to grow up with Jesus. This James right here is the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus, probably got in fights with Jesus, usually James' fault is my guess. Um, grew up maybe apprenticing under his father, both being carpenters. And so, so you, can, you can imagine that for James, that when his older brother Jesus started going around telling people that he was God, that it came as a bit of a shock to him, right? And, and, he, and he did what any good younger brother would do in that moment. Uh, he, he tried to stop his brother from doing that. In one of the Gospels, in an account there, uh, Mary, James, some of the brothers, friends, tried to pull Jesus aside and stop him from doing that because going around telling people that you were God was a thing that could get you killed. You could be killed for that. Unlike today, you might be able to like garner a big YouTube following or you'd go into politics or it might help you run a tech company or something like that. But back then, this was blasphemy. This was blasphemy. You could get killed for this. And as we know, Jesus was killed for this. He was sentenced to death for claiming to be God. But what we need to understand is that that moment, the moment that Jesus died a murderer's death, that he died that death on a cross, it was a turning point in the life of James. When James witnessed his brother being brutally murdered and then three days later encountering his resurrected, his resurrected brother, that changed everything for James. That changed everything for him. And he would go on to become a leading elder in the first major church of this nascent Jesus movement in Jerusalem. And he was well acquainted with, with navigating a brutal and dark world as he led this church through hardship and adversity and persecution. That's how he opens his letter. James 1, verse 1, look there. He writes, From James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. You see, this church in Jerusalem that James led, it was, it was persecuted to the point where the decision to follow Jesus and be faithful to him in this world meant uprooting your life. It meant leaving your home, leaving behind everything you knew, becoming a refugee and settling elsewhere. That is who James is writing to, people who are undergoing great hardship. That is who the 12 tribes dispersed abroad are, a scattering of Jewish Christians around the Roman Empire in a middle of a, of a fight for their lives. Now let me ask all of you this. How many of you have ever been in a fight before? 
like an actual fist fight. Raise your hands. No church discipline coming your way. Just raise your hands, okay? That's some interesting uh, hands being raised right here. I was not expecting that. We'll have to talk after the service and swap stories. I've been in a couple myself. You know, you let the emotions get the best of you as a young man. But you know, if you've been in that situation before, that, that engaging in a, in a fight is, is no joke. And there's a big difference between getting caught off guard with a fight and actually being prepared in advance knowing that that fight is coming. And if you know, listen, if you know that that fight is coming your way, you will be far better prepared than if it catches you off guard. Listen, being a Christian in this world today it means that you're going to get punched in the mouth in life at some point, at some point. And we can set out with the best intentions in the world to go about and follow Jesus and pursue this better way forward that we've looked at for the last four weeks. But we need to be ready. We need to be prepared for when the fight comes our way. And not just because we're Christians, although that's part of it, but, but whether you're a Christian or not, it is just the way life is. We live in a broken, hard, difficult world. Welcome to church. You glad you came here today? We live in a broken world. And yes, Jesus said his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and that is completely true. But what I love about scripture is that it is brutally honest. It gives us a crystal clear HD picture of what it looks like, of what it means to follow Jesus in the world that is, not the world that we want. And the world that is, again, it is, it is not sterile. The world that is is not controlled. Our world is grimy. Our world is full of pain. Our world is broken and just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're not going to encounter that brokenness, that you're not going to encounter that hardship. In fact, many of you here today are in the middle of that right now. You are bringing into this room some heavy baggage. You are in the middle of the ring. You are in the middle of a fight. You're bringing a broken relationship in here. You, you lost a job. You have money problems. You're struggling with some health issues. You know you are deeply acquainted with the reality that trials are a part of this world that we live in. And so does James. So does James. In fact, it's how he starts off his letter. Look at verse two. He writes, My brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. Now the first thing I want us to see in this verse is what James does not say. And James does not say consider it joy if you encounter all sorts of trials. Listen, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. I said this a few months ago, you're either coming out of a storm, you're in a storm, or you're heading into a storm. That's life. Again, welcome to church, right? That's life. Adversity is coming. Storms are coming. Trials are coming. But I think the, the, the more sobering thing, the more difficult pill to swallow here in this very first verse or second verse here in James is that first part of the second verse where he writes this, consider it 
nothing but what? Joy. Consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. Excuse me, James? What are you asking me to do right now? Consider it nothing but joy? You want me to be joyful in life when I encounter trial? Other translations translate that word for consider uh, to be uh, count it joy or esteem it joy, and it's a translation of this Greek word hegesasthe. You want to try to say it? Hegesasthe. Hegesasthe. And it's, and it's important to understand that this verb right here is in the imperative Mood. Now, it's been a while since we've gotten nerdy with the Greek. I hope you can humor me for just a moment. But the importance of seeing this here is that the imperative mood means it's a command. It's not optional. We're being told to do this as followers of Jesus, to consider it joy. And the interesting thing about the imperative mood in the book of James is in James, we have five chapters, we have 108 verses, and those are added after the fact. James didn't write like verse one, verse two. The scribes did that years and years later. But in this little letter from James, we have 54 imperatives, in 108 verses. That means every other verse, we're getting a command. James is not messing around in this letter. And the first command that we have here is to consider it joy when we encounter, when we fall into all sorts of trials. Now, I'm not a huge fan of this word consider because oftentimes in, in English today, we use consider like with respect to possibilities. Like, I'll consider it. Like, I'll consider what I want for breakfast, or I'll consider hanging out with you, which as you get older becomes less and less likely, right? <laughs> A better way of understanding this word in its native Greek sense is something like this. When you encounter trials in your life, would the very first thought you think about in that situation be, would the very first thought that you think about in that situation be one of joy, be one of rejoicing, not some sort of subjective reaction drawn from your emotions like this is miserable and I'm awful, but would the first thing through discipline that crosses your mind when you encounter trials be one of joy, be one of rejoicing? Now this might sound counterintuitive because it is. It is counterintuitive. It might also sound shockingly similar to a very popular phrase that's going around these days called toxic positivity. Have you heard of this? Toxic positivity. It's this idea, this concept, that no matter how dire or difficult a situation is, we should maintain a positive mindset. Understand here in James 1-2 that this is not that, Okay? This is not that. When you encounter trials, let's be clear about something here. They're going to be hard. They're going to be painful. You're going to wish you weren't going through it. We are going to weep and cry and worry, and there are going to be sleepless nights. Listen, we do not rejoice and take joy in the trial itself. We rejoice and take joy in something deeper and greater that is going on beneath the surface. And what is that thing? Well, look at verse three. Second half of verse, second, uh, verse two says, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. Why? Verse three, look here now. Because you know that the testing of your faith 
produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect, full effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. And so when we encounter trials and problems, uh, all sorts of trials, physical trials, money trials, relational trials, James says that we are not simply to bow our heads in defeat and go and sulk away and be sad somewhere in a corner. We're not called to shake our fists and, and get angry with God in the moment. We are called to rejoice. In other words, we are called to treasure trials as times of spiritual transformation. If you take only one thing from today's teaching, would it be that? That as followers of Jesus, when we go through hardship, we are, we are called to treasure those trials as times of spiritual transformation. Hear this. Trials are not punishments in your life from some vindictive God. Trials in your life did not somehow manage to squeak their way in your life because God was not watching, because he fell asleep. That's not what trials are. God somehow is mysteriously allowing and using trials in your life to test your faith and produce endurance so that you would become a fully formed follower of Jesus, that you would be made more like him. I mean, think back in your life to the times where you experienced the greatest amount of spiritual growth. Were they on the mountaintop when everything was going great and the sun was shining? Or were they in the valley where you were plodding along and it was difficult to get yourself out of bed and you wondered what was next and maybe you were wondering, God, where are you and how are you working in and through this? When did you experience the greatest amount of spiritual growth? Was it not in the valley? Was it not through the trial? Was it not through hardship? And that's why James is telling us that our first thought when we encounter trials, when we encounter hardship, should be one of joy-filled anticipation because when that trial comes, we can know that our good Father in heaven is up to something. And he is going to work in and through that. He's gonna work something deeper and greater in our lives than we could ever imagine. He is producing a good work within us. He is testing us. He is testing us. This Greek word for the word testing is this word dokimion. Dokimion, and it's a cool word because it's a word that would be used by silversmiths back then who would, who would test silver. And the way they would do this is they would take things of you know, silver with all of its impurities and they'd throw it in this big pot and they would heat it up with this like really, really hot fire until it all melted down and the silver would go to the bottom and the impurities would rise to the top. They called those impurities dross. And the silversmith would scoop those impurities out and he would toss them off to the side and then he would heat it up again and heat it up even hotter. And he would scoop the impurities out until the silver was tested, until the silver was pure. And this is the coolest part about this, this story here is that a silversmith knew that silver was fully tested when he was able to look down into the silver and see his own reflection come back up at him. 
And I think this is a beautiful picture because the idea that the trials in our lives that James is talking about here, the fire is on us. It's heating up. It's getting hotter and hotter. And God is purifying you as you go through those trials. And the idea is that one day, he would be able to look down at you and see a reflection of himself. That he would see that you are perfect and complete lacking in nothing. That is what God is doing in trials in our lives. Treasure trials as times of spiritual transformation. Because know this, no adversity that you go through, no hardship that you face, no trial that seems to overwhelm your life is wasted in the hands of an almighty, loving God. As Paul writes, he is working all things together for the good of those that love him. And it's, it's not going to feel great. And I'm not asking you, and James is not asking you to feel happy about it. It's not going to feel good. It's gonna be hard. It's gonna be painful. There are gonna be tears. There are gonna be sleepless nights. Again, the trials themselves are not the source of joy for us but know that God is working in and through them to transform you spiritually, to mature you, to make you more like Jesus. That's where the joy lies. That's where the rejoicing lies. Look at verse five now. Verse five. But if anyone is deficient in wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and without reprimand, and it will be given to him but he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed around by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord since he is a double-minded individual, unstable in all his ways. And so James starts to get pretty pastoral here, but we might wonder, like, what's the connection now? Like, we're talking about wisdom now, we were just talking about trials, and once you see the connection, it becomes pretty obvious. You know, God, God says, listen, you're going to face trials, and when you face those trials, don't sulk away, rejoice, because I am up to something. I am working and we can hold on to that, but James knows in this moment that that is so much easier said than done, right? So much easier said than done. This might be kind of a stretch right now, but how many of you remember back in like the mid-90s, a big fight between Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield? Anyone remember this fight? Remember this fight back in 1996? I was in middle school. I'm kind of dating myself there right now. But, but I, I remember this fight, and I remember the hype around it. And there were a bunch of press interviews leading up to this fight. And I'm not sure if you remember, but Mike Tyson was interviewed at one point, and he was asked, do you have a fight plan going into this fight? And he said this, and I'm not going to do a Mike Tyson voice, just so you know, okay, I'm sorry. Sorry to disappoint. We are not going there today. But he said this, I love this, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> Isn't that so true? Mike Tyson was favored to win this fight 15 to 2. And whether or not he had a plan, uh, things went off course really quickly because if you remember, this was the fight where he bit Evander Holyfield's ear off. Do you remember that? Crazy, right? And this, 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 this might be many of our stories. 
Not that we actually bit someone's ear off. I hope that's not your story. <laughs> and if it is, this is a safe place. You can talk about it, okay? But, but we can be settled. We, we, we can hear James 1, 2 through 4 and be like, all right, that's good. I'm ready. Put me in, coach. I, I, can, I can fight. And then all of a sudden we get punched in the mouth and we're like, no. And, and we step back and we're confused and we get disoriented. And James knows, knows this and he says, if that's you, if that's you, if you're confused, if you're disoriented in the middle of the painful thing you're going through, then do this. Cry out to God. Ask him for wisdom. God, help me understand why it is that I'm going through what I'm going through. Give me wisdom, Lord. And James says that when you ask him, he will give it to you generously and without reprimand. He's not gonna judge you for it. He's not gonna be like, oh, here's this guy again asking for more wisdom. He just can't understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. No, he gives it generously. Or does he? Or does he? Because in verses six through eight, James goes on about, what. but when you ask, make sure you ask without doubting. And, and, and if you're like me, in the face of trials, and you're going through hardship, and you're disoriented and confused, doesn't it feel like when you ask in that moment, you're doubting? Does God listen to that? Does God honor that? Well, what is it, James? Should I ask? Should I not ask? And for some clarity, I thought we'd just briefly go to one of the Gospels in Mark 9. You can turn there or you can follow along on the screen. And in Mark 9, there's this story about this young boy who was demon-possessed. And the disciples were trying to cast this demon out, and they couldn't do it. So they brought the kid to Jesus, and, and Jesus invites this kid and the father to him. And Jesus, uh, the father says to Jesus in verse 22, he says this, If you are able to do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And I love Jesus' response in verse 23. He says this, he says, if you are able. Like, do you know who I am? I'm Jesus, man. I can do this. And he says, all things are possible for the one who believes, for the one who has faith. And then I love the father's response. He says this. Immediately the father of the boy cried out and he said, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus, in that moment, saw that man's mustard seed faith in the midst of his trial, in the midst of his battle, and he honored that, and he healed his boy. So here's the deal. In that place where we are in the middle of the fight, in the middle of the trial, we have just gotten punched in the mouth and we are disoriented and confused and we cry out to God, God, I need you. I need your wisdom. I need you to move. I believe. Help my unbelief. God looks down on that faith in the middle of the fight and he honors it. He honors it. He sees that mustard seed faith and he provides. He provides. Listen, I'm not sure what form or type of Christianity you've subscribed to, but if you're waiting for some moment in your walk with Jesus to no longer be burdened by the weight and the trials of life and to have this seemingly perfect steady faith on this side of eternity, you'll be waiting until you get buried into the ground. That time isn't coming. We wrestle, we battle, we fight on this side of eternity. Life has a way of pounding us down. 
And, and, and I wanna say all of that to say this, that if you wrestle with doubt, you should not feel guilt or shame over that. Amen. It's okay, Amen. it's okay. God honors that as we reach out to him and we cry out to him, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief, but then who's the double-minded person? Who is the double-minded person? Well, I think the double-minded person is the person who merely gives lip service to God. It's the person that pretends like everything is okay. And internally, you're like, I'm not even going to cry out to God because he's not going to hear my prayers. This thing isn't even on his radar. And, and, and you pretend, you put up this facade like you have everything together. As Brian said, groups are starting this week. And over time, the, the prayer, the hope is that we build relationship and we get to a spot of trust and vulnerability with other people so that we're able to share some of the difficult things we're going through. And the double-minded person is the person who enters into relationship with other people and they're still weeks, months, years later like, I'm good. It's all good. I don't have any problems, I don't have any doubts. Listen, that is not the human experience. We go through trials, we go through hardships, they, they bring about doubts. That is the person where God's like, nope, not yet. They're not ready yet. They're not ready. How many of you have ever heard the um, dumb phrase, God helps those who help themselves? Have you heard this before? You know, you know a lot of Christians think that's in the Bible? It's stupid. It's nonsense, and we're gonna rewrite it this morning. God helps the humble heart that knows they're helpless without him. That's who God helps. That's what James is saying here. God helps the humble heart that knows they're helpless without him. That's what he's saying in verses five through eight. We need to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and cry out and know that we are helpless. God, we believe, but help my unbelief. James doubles down on this in verse nine. Look there. Now the believer of humble means should take pride in his high position, but the rich person's pride should be in his humiliation because he will pass away like a wildflower in the meadow. Verse 11, for the sun rises with its heat and it dries up the meadow. The petal of the flower falls off and its beauty is lost forever so also the rich person in the midst of his pursuits will wither away. Now again, it might seem like James is like pivoting topics. He's talking about trials, he's talking about wisdom, he, he, and now he's talking about money, he's talking about wealth. What's he getting at here? No, no, what James is doing here is he's overturning conventional wisdom as to where we should place our trust and where we should place our confidence. Listen, trials do not discriminate against people who have larger savings accounts. Adversity does not discriminate against people who have bigger 401ks. Hardship does not discriminate against an individual who has more square feet in their home. And so is James making some moral judgment about money here? No, he is not. He is not. God's word classifies money as amoral. It is neither good nor evil. It's the heart of the person who has the money. That's the problem. That's what makes all the difference. And so the question we have to ask ourselves in this conversation, in this letter that James is writing here is this. Where am I investing my faith for safekeeping? 
Where am I investing my faith for safekeeping? In whom or in what am I placing my trust? Where am I placing my confidence? Do I find my sense of security in the reality that I've got a well-funded emergency account? Do I find contentment and peace knowing that I've stashed away a lot for retirement and eventually, one day, smooth sailing is coming? Do do I find a sense of personal pride in a position that I have because I'm well compensated or well thought of in my job? Listen, God is all for working hard. God says money can be a blessing and that we we can enjoy the fruit of our labors. We see this in God's word. Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20. Write it down. Look it up. That's God's view toward that. But, but, God's word also warns us. And it warns us right here that our money, our wealth, our sense of security that we can find in those things, they're like a what? What does he write here? He says they're like a wildflower in the meadow and they can wither away in the heat of the scorching sun. Disasters, bad investments, unforeseen circumstances, all of those things can have destructive impact on wealth no matter how much we have and so we have to ask ourselves, where am I placing my faith for safekeeping? Is it in a created thing like money or is it in the creator God? Where is it? Again, remember, God helps the humble heart that knows they're helpless without him. That's who God helps. That's who God helps. Look at verse 13 now. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires, and when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. And so again, what is James doing here? Is he pivoting to another topic? Now he's moved from money, now he's moving to temptation. What James is doing here is James is a good pastor, and he knows that when you encounter trial, when you encounter hardship, when we face adversity, we are most prone, we are at our weakest point to make ourselves available to temptation. It's in those moments of trial and hardship that our head starts to pivot around everywhere looking for relief, looking for comfort. And so often the things in the midst of trials and hardship that we turn to for comfort are not good for us. We are tempted. And James says, brothers and sisters, dear friends, when that happens, don't blame God. That's not God's fault in that moment. If you want to know whose fault it is, just look in the mirror. Don't even say the devil made me do it. James is like, it's inside of us. It's us. It's our own flesh. It's our own desires. Don't be led astray because that way is going to lead to death and that's not God's desire for you. And at this moment, we can even feel it in this room right now. James is like, I know they're going to need some encouragement. (laughs) I know they're going to need some relief, some hope. And that's what James does here. He turns our eyes to the only place our eyes can go in this moment. In verse 16, he writes, so don't be led astray. 
my dear brothers and sisters. Instead, look this direction, verse 17. He says, all generous giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And what's this Father of lights like? He doesn't change. With whom there is no variation or the slightest hint of change, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means he is always good. Yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 18, by his sovereign plan, by his will, he gave us birth through the message of truth. He chose you. He saw you in all your brokenness, in the hardship that you're going through. He saw you. He chose you to be his child, that you would be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And so James is saying, friends, listen, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. You're in the midst of trials. Don't be led astray. Keep your eyes, fix your eyes on on your Father in heaven, the one who never changes, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is good, and he is working in the midst of your hardship, in the midst of your trial. This beautiful reminder here, listen, one of the greatest anchors for your soul, regardless of the intensity of the trial that you're facing right now, is that the greater your knowledge of the goodness and grace of God in your life, the more likely you are to praise him in the storm. Let me say that again. One of the greatest anchors for our souls in the midst of our trial, in the midst of the storm, is that the greater your knowledge of the goodness and grace of God in your life, the more likely you are to praise him in the midst of the storm. And as I was reading through these first 18 verses of James and I was processing them and studying them, one story that came to mind, and this is kind of random, but it was when I was a kid. And I had this good friend, his name was Jim. We called him Jimmy. And he and his family had this house up in Wisconsin and we were at this lake house one weekend in Wisconsin. He had this younger brother who was just insane. He was this crazy kid. And I remember we were up there that weekend and we would go up there and we'd go tubing and we'd have fun. And then and his younger brother, he'd be in the mix of it. He'd be in the middle of it. But on this trip, it was different. He wouldn't get on the tube and he kept like holding his hand and nursing his hand and keeping it close by. And eventually his dad was just like, what's going on? And so he looked at his hand and it was like red and swollen. And at some point, either on that trip or before that trip, he he had gotten this like pretty gnarly splinter lodged into his hand. How many parents have ever removed a splinter from their kids before? Do you know how like traumatizing that can be for a kid, right? Some, yeah, it's like an exorcism. Exactly right. Exactly right. And let me tell you, that's exactly what was happening here, okay? When this kid found out that his dad would have to cut open his hand to pull out the splinter, he went berserk. I mean, it was so bad that here we are at this little cabin lake house thing and his mom has her whole body laid on top of him and the dad's got the arm in a vice grip and like he, you, you, the neighbors would have thought that we were killing this poor child. He was screaming out, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. And, 
And so eventually they got the splinter out. They bandaged up his hand. And literally by the next day, the swelling started to go down. He was able to use his hand. He was out on the boat. He was playing. And and it was like it was over. It was done. What's happening here in this first part of James, in this letter, is that what you need to understand is, is, is that God didn't make a mistake with you. He chose you to be his child. But you might find yourself in a season of hardship or you will eventually find yourself in a season of hardship and it's going to feel like you're being pinned down by your father in heaven as he's pulling an impurity out of you. Listen, you need to understand it's not cruel. It's not vindictive. It's loving. It's loving. What else would a loving parent do? Would that parent allow that splinter to continue to fester and get worse and worse? Or would they remove it? And then we might be in the middle of it right now and we just might be crying out to God, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. I can't get through this. I can't do this. But know this, that your Father in heaven is using that painful thing lodged in your life right now to make you more like his son. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's hard. But know that God will not allow that thing to be wasted. He's using it to do something great in you. He's using it to transform you. It's why we can, by faith, treasure trials as times of spiritual transformation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just want to pray for anyone in this room going through hardship going through trial. I ask that you would provide them comfort and peace. Help them to know by faith that you are working in and through that trial to make them more like your son. Would you give them your peace? Would you surround them with people who can comfort them and speak truth into their lives and encourage them to fix their eyes on you? God, I pray for those of us who are in a pretty sweet season right now in life, who aren't facing trial, but when we think of trial and hardship, we can certainly think back on times of hardship that we've gone through. Lord, if we're alive and breathing here today, God, we will face trials again in the future. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to to have a deeper understanding of your goodness and grace in our lives so that when we go through that trial, we will be able to praise you in the middle of the storm because that is who you are, God. You are a good and gracious and loving God. And so we thank you for your kindness in our lives. We thank you for Jesus Christ, Lord. We thank you that he went to the cross in our place. But he suffered hardship in our place and we can now have relationship with you and know in full confidence that you are working in and through every difficult thing for our good. And so as we step forward from this place today, would we step forward unlike other people in this world, full of confidence, knowing that we can face trials and although they might be hard and although we we might weep and lose sleep at night over them, God, that you are working in and through them. Give us faith, God, to believe that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.